If you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. It's where we're going to be. We'll read verses 19 to 34 together. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me for you to follow along. Jesus says in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now we've been walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount over the course of the last several months. Took a break at Easter, a little bit after Easter as well. We're turning to it. Stanley knocked it out of the park last week. Took a look at verses 1 to 18 of chapter 6. He's a much better preacher than I am. And so I can't cover as much ground as he can in one setting. And so although I read all of these verses to you this morning, we're going to really drill down in the latter part of those verses in verses 25 and following. And we'll come back in a couple of weeks and pick up in verses 19 to 24. But we've been looking at in the Sermon on the Mount, when we started this series back in January, we said that in the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous teachings in all of the Gospels, that what Jesus is presenting to us is his vision for the good life, what the good life looks like in relationship to God as those who live under his righteous and redemptive rule as citizens of God's kingdom. And so we've been unfolding Jesus' vision for that over the course of Matthew chapter 5 and now into Matthew chapter 6. What does the good life look like? And this morning we come to see that a part of Jesus' vision for the good life, a life lived under his righteous and redemptive rule, is a life that is free from worry and anxiety. It's part of Jesus' vision. Now when we started this several months ago as well, we said that that the life that Jesus pictures for us in the Sermon on the Mount is one that is absolutely countercultural. It is upside down in the world in which we live. It's completely counter to the culture. And whenever we come to this text this morning, I want you to know that when Jesus presents a vision for an anxiety and worry-free life, he is presenting a vision that is absolutely countercultural in our day and time. It is absolutely upside down to be one whose life is free from anxiety because we live in a culture that is filled with anxiety. 
We live in a culture that is in shackles many times and in bondage to worry and burdensome cares. In fact, in, in, if you look at the statistics, in 2013, uh, Americans filled 48 million prescriptions for Xanax and 27 million prescriptions for Zoloft, both of which are drugs which help combat antidepressant te- or depressant tendencies and anxiety that are used to medicate individuals who are wrestling and overrun with anxiety. We live in a nation and an age that is filled with anxiety overflowing and running out into our lives. It's the most diagnosed mental disorder in our nation. But my, and, and there are many sources of anxiety. Anxiety comes from lots of different places, right? It's an equal opportunity borrower, right? It takes from all kinds of places whenever it rises in our hearts. And so we can be anxious about our present circumstances. Anybody in the room anxious about present circumstances in their life? Okay, I'm gonna be honest and all the rest of you are lying, okay? So I am anxious at times about present circumstances in my life. Are we gonna be anxious over the future uncertainty, right, of what things are going to look like? They can come from all kinds of places, but most frequently, our anxieties center on the what ifs of life, don't they? Most frequently, anxiety rises in our hearts whenever we listen to ourselves asking that question over and over again, what if? What if I lose my job? What if we lose that big account that I was depending upon? What if I have to take a pay reduction? What if I get passed over for the promotion? What if this business that I'm trying to start never really gains traction and gets off of the ground? What if I am in the same dead-end job for the rest of my life? What if I never finish the degree? What if I never get the certification? It can revolve around all kinds of vocational what ifs, but it can also revolve around all kinds of relational what ifs as well, right? For those of you who are single in the room, what if I never meet the, the one, right? What if I never get married? What if I'm isolated and lonely and live in singleness for the rest of my life? What if my spouse, for those of us who are married, what if my spouse never changes? What if I have to, what if I live with this, right? Seeing and staying for the rest of my life. What if they never change, never grow in some of these areas? I would love to see them mature and develop in. What if I never change and never become the spouse that they want? What if my kids go wayward? What if they reject this faith that I've clung to so tightly? What if they derail their lives and send themselves into prison or to death? All kinds of relational what ifs. It could be what ifs of, uh, what if I don't age gracefully, right? That's a huge one in our culture. What if the pain never goes away? What if the emotional heartache or the literal physical pain that I'm experiencing, what if it never subsides? What if it never ends? What if there's no treatment for it? What if the tests come back positive? What if the treatment doesn't work? What if I lose my life at a ripe young age instead of a ripe old one? All kinds of what ifs, but they don't stop there. What if I miss out? And we even have a term for this right now, right? It's called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. What if I miss out on the house that I've always, my dream house? What if we don't get to buy the land? What if I don't get to get the new car? What if I never get to take the vacation of my dreams and have all these experiences that everyone else has? 
See, the vision of life that Jesus presents for an anxiety-free life is countercultural in a culture that is filled with anxiety. And just so you, you, you don't think, well, this is just reserved for adults who have big boy and big girl problems, right? Anxiety disorders are starting to show up and, and diagnoses of anxiety starting to show up younger and younger and earlier and earlier in the lives of children and teens. Listen to, these, listen to this. In, in, in 2015, about three million teens, ages 12 to 17, had at least one major depressive episode brought on by anxiety. uh, statistics according to the Department of Health and Human Services. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, about 30% of the girls and 60% of the boys, totaling 6.3 million teens have had some sort of anxiety disorder because they live with what ifs as well. You you guys up here know that, don't you? You live with what ifs as well. Like what if I don't get the right grades? What if we don't win the championship? What if I don't receive the academic or athletic scholarship that I need to get into the right school so I can get the right education, so I can get the right job, so I can make the right amount of money to live happily, safely, and securely? What if, and all those pressures are coming downstream, pressing in on not just those who are breadwinners and providers in their home, but those who aspire to be one day? We live with all kinds of what ifs. And listen, anxiety, our anxiety is sourced in those oftentimes. Now listen, if you're here this morning and you struggle with anxiety, maybe you're one of those millions who've had prescriptions for Zoloft or Xanax. Maybe they're in your cabinet right now. Here's what I wanna say to you. I wanna say to you, this is a safe place. This church is a safe place if you're struggling with anxiety because I want you to know that I wake up every morning some weeks and, the, and I sin before I even get out of bed because anxious thoughts begin to run through my mind and I begin to dwell on what if, what if, what if, what if. I don't know if you're like that, but I know I tend to be that way as well. It's a safe place for you if you struggle with anxiety, but I want you to know this as well. This is not a safe place for your anxieties. And here's why. It's because what Jesus wants to do is uproot them out of your life and free you from them. He's got a vision for this life that is free from anxiety. He wants to put those things to death, crush them, squash them, and rip them out of your heart and replace them with truths about who God is and what God does. And so that's what I wanna do this morning in the time that we have together is take a look at this text through that lens. How do we fight against anxiety and partner with the work that Jesus wants to do in our lives by uprooting our anxieties? How do we participate in that? And the first thing you've gotta do if you're gonna fight against anxiety in your life is this. You gotta learn to identify the source. You gotta learn to identify the source. Now listen, anxiety is a sin and it is a disorder. It's both. Okay, listen, in in verses 25, 31, and 34, Jesus explicitly commands us, do not be anxious, do not worry. It's a command that he gives. And so when Jesus gives us a command for us to violate that and go against that is sin, is to resist Jesus and his righteous and redemptive rule in our lives. It is sinful to allow anxiety to overrun and fill our lives, Jesus says, to give ourselves over to anxiety just thoughts and worrisome frets. 
But it's, it doesn't stop there because anxiety is not just a sin, but it's also a disorder. You see, we're not, we're not like the, some of the early Christian heretics who were Gnostics where they thought, well, the body's one thing and the soul's another. No, we can't compartmentalize ourselves that way because we are bound together in one person. We're humans. And anxiety is not only a sin where we violate God's command not to be anxious, but to rest and trust and find refuge in him, but it's also a disorder. Because sometimes, for many people, anxiety, their, their anxieties can be partly the product of chemical imbalances in their bodies. Their brain and body chemistry are aligned in such a way uh, that they, at times, need medication. Now listen, medication will not be your savior. It won't save you from all your anxieties, but what it can be is a leveler. Right? It can balance out the brain and body chemistry to the degree where you can begin to get underneath and see the source of what's driving you to all these anxious and worrisome thoughts to dwell on those things. Right? It can't be your savior, but it can be a leveler. Now listen, I, I'm not a doctor, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night either, okay? Right? I don't have a prescription pad. No pharmacy in this county will take my signature. If they do, you need to find another pharmacist, okay? Um, so I'm not a, not a physician, so I can't spend a whole lot of time talking about the medical realities at play here, but what I want to spend our time is addressing the spiritual realities that are at play here. Some of you may need to consult a physician or a counselor. If there's just over, if, if your life is constantly overrun, anxiety to wear, right? The, the stimulus is very small, but the anxiety is like super pronounced in your life, then there may be some things that can be treated to level the playing field so that you can begin to clearly get to the source of what's driving you to some of those thoughts and to dwell on those things, right? So you come, if you come to me looking for that kind of counsel, I'll send you to your physician, but what I want to counsel you in is what the scriptures teach us about the spiritual realities underneath our anxiety. See, oftentimes, when we're trying to get to the source of our anxieties, spiritually, we don't look deep enough. You ever find out to be true in your life? You, don't, you just don't dig deep enough. When we try and identify the sources, we often look at surface level sources rather than subterranean sources. Right? Things that are under the surface. Whenever we begin to experience anxiety, right, we begin to, we begin to look at, we begin to try and trace down its source. We look at, we see the fruit of anxiety and we look at the branches or we look at the trunk, but we never really look at the roots. And what that looks like is this, is whenever we experience seasons of high anxiety and worry in our lives, is we tend to look at our outward circumstances, our situations that we find ourselves in and say, if I could just be removed from that situation or removed from that circumstance, then my levels of worry and anxiety would diminish and my levels of joy and peace would increase. But I want you to know that's not true, right? A change outwardly in your circumstances can never really address the heart level rooted issues that drive you to dwell on some of that, those anxious and worrisome thoughts, Listen, if, if, here's why. I want to show it to you in the text, okay? Here's why that's not true. Because in verse 25, there's a therefore. <laughs> in verse 25, there's a therefore. Now, the therefore is therefore a reason. You probably heard other preachers use that little pithy 
phraseology before, but the therefore is therefore a reason because what Jesus says in verses 25 to 34 is connected to what he said in verses 19 to 24. Right? Is there's a logical connection between those two things, right? If I said, it's going to rain today, therefore, you should bring an umbrella with you, right? Then the response of bringing an umbrella with you is a logical reaction to the statement about the impending rain and the forecast, right? There's a connection between those two things. Here's a condition, here's an action. There's a logical connection between them. And Jesus says in verse 25, coming out of verse 24, therefore, Now, what's the connection? In verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, see, if you trace your anxiety, do not be anxious. If you trace your anxieties, if you track down your fears, if you follow those worrisome and fretful feelings, emotions, and thoughts to their source, what you will eventually find spiritually is another master. That's what you're gonna find. There's another master operating beneath the surface of your life. There is, as the the authors of the Old Testament would have talked about, and the New Testament, they would have talked about idolatry. There's another idol, a little g God operating underneath the surface. And if you trace your fears, if you trace those things deep enough, you'll find another master whom you are serving, another master that you're bending your knee to, another master whose rule you're coming under because you're seeking something from them. You're seeking significance or satisfaction. You're seeking security or status. You're seeking them to, you, you desire for them to save you and give your life meaning and purpose. There's another master operating under the surface. See, oftentimes, at all of our circumstances and situations and say, look at the branches and the trunks and say, if I could just move that tree, I would be okay when the problem is the root. And we never get that far down. See, some of us, we trace, if we trace our anxieties back to their source, you might find another master of comfort. And so anxiety rises in your life whenever material things begin to be stripped away from you. You get very worrisome about that. Some of us might find the, the idol of approval. And so when other people don't accept you and receive you and validate you and applaud you and recognize you and appreciate you and move towards you, anxious anxiety begins to rise in your life because you don't feel like that master of approval, you're serving them very well. Others might be the, the, the master of control down within our hearts that really deep down, lots of our anxiety stems from our desire for deity that we want to be God, we wanna control the outcomes of our life, we wanna manipulate relationships to such a degree that we can control and maintain control over all the outcomes and whenever we find ourselves staring in the mirror of our own insufficiency, realizing we're not wise enough to control our lives, anxiety begins to rise in our hearts because we feel like things are spiraling out of control. See, if you dig deep enough, you will find its source and it's not at the base of the tree, it's under the surface of the ground. It's in your heart, it's in my heart. And so the question is this, is once you dig down and find, identify the source, is it a desire for approval? Is it a desire for control? Is it a desire for comfort? Am I, what other master am I serving? 
then the next step is you have to begin to learn to reorder your loves. And here's what I mean by that. You have to learn to look to God for what you are looking to that other master to provide for you. Whatever little G God you were looking to, you have to learn to look to God as that, as that source of your treasure, that place of primacy in your life, the one who rules and reigns above all things. You have to learn to reorder your loves. See, oftentimes our anxiety rises when our loves are disordered. And in this particular context, I want you to see something, right? Oftentimes, uh, anxiety rises when we have disordered loves, and one of the expressions of that is when we begin to turn basic necessities into ultimate realities. We turn basic necessities into ultimate realities. Listen, Jesus is speaking to an audience here that is anxious over basic necessities of life. Do not be anxious about what you will eat and what you will wear, what you will drink. Jesus is saying there are certain things that, that, that the crowd and the audience that he was talking to, that they, they were, they, there was levels of worry and fretsome thoughts over their basic necessities of life. And listen, you can still go to parts of the world today where there is still people who don't know where their next meal's coming from and they don't know what, the only clothes they have is the ones on their back, right? You can go to parts of Dallas and still find individuals who are wandering the streets homeless, not knowing where they're gonna sleep, what they're going to eat, or what they're going to wear whenever this particular set of clothes wears out for them you can still find that but listen for most if not everyone in this room our anxiety does not rise over basic necessities most of us if not all of us in this room we have food that we're going to eat when we leave here whether it be in our restaurant or something you've got in the crock pot at home you can invite me if you'd like. I'll come over and taste it with you, right? Just, you, you, don't, you don't worry about your clothing. You go home and you have a closet full of shoes and full of clothes. You don't worry about what you're gonna drink. You turn on your tap, tap in, your, in, in, in your house and it may not taste the best during the summer because it gets a little bit dirty, the water supply, but you still have clean water to drink. You don't worry and anxious about basic necessities, but here's what we've done in the West in our particular affluent culture is we've turned basic necessities into ultimate realities by the pursuit and making the great aim of our lives having the right amenities. Having the right amenities. Right, and so enter D Magazine. <laughs> Familiar with D Magazine? Anyone? I mean, you live in Dallas. I think maybe a few of you are familiar with D Magazine. Maybe you've heard, maybe you heard somebody talking about it at some other time. But D Magazine, right? Inner D Magazine. D Magazine is written, uh, the tagline on the magazine is this, right? Let's make Dallas even better, right? And so our, our great city that we live in, we wanna, it's not good enough as it is, we wanna make it better. And here's how they wanna do that, by exposing you uh, to the best in Dallas, Right? The best in Dallas. So you can find the best shopping districts with the trendiest stores. Right? Because it's not enough for us any longer just to have clothing to wear in our closet, but we have to have the right clothing, fashionable clothing, designer clothing, right? The, the, the brand on it, the, 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 the trends that are circulating. Right? And so you can find the shopping districts with the trendiest stores. You can find the restaurants with the finest cuisine because no longer is it enough just to have food to eat, but we have to be a foodie. Okay? And so we experience the best burgers and the best steaks and the best seafood and all those things. 
right? And so they're showing us where we can get the best of life in Dallas, the best designers to come and remodel your home to make sure you've got subway tile and hand-scraped hardwoods, right? So you've got all these things that are on the covers of magazine and better homes and gardens, right? Because a good home and a good garden is not good enough. You've got to have a better one. See, we've turned basic necessities into ultimate realities and made them the pursuit of our life by trying to ensure we have the right amenities to make life worthwhile. You can find the best legal counsel and the best physicians, the best salons, the best makeup, right? You can find all these things out there in D Magazine because they want to make your life, they want to upgrade your life from just being good to better to best. And what we've done is what we, what we've done is we've replaced the place of God in our lives with the aspirations for having the right amenities. That if we can just secure a life where we eat at the best restaurants, wear the finest clothes, drive the right cars, live in the right homes, have the right interior design, have the right fashion, the right shoes, have the right look, have the right hair, have the right makeup, have the right physical appearance and appeal to other people, then we will be satisfied, significant, and secure. And into that culture, in that kind of culture, D Magazine can flourish because it is a culture in the West which has largely rejected the attitude of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, where he says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And into this culture, Jesus says, you must learn to reorder your loves and order them rightly. Listen, it's not that good food or cute fashion Right? It's not that any of that is wrong or bad or ugly. It's that it's, it's their place. Where's their place in our lives? Are we anxious and, and riddled with worry because we're concerned that we don't have the right lifestyle and the right amenities in our lives? Listen to the question Jesus asked in verse 25. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, are not the ultimate realities of life more than what you eat, more than what you drink, and more than what you wear? It's not the ultimate reality of life, this great grand God who is out of his love and grace created all of creation to be enjoyed for our pleasure as we glorify him through all the things that we take in as his good gifts. And that we have a relationship to him through Jesus Christ who lived in our place, died in our place, and rose from the grave to reconcile us to God that we might experience forgiveness and our guilt might be wiped away. Isn't that the ultimate reality, to enjoy him and to bring him glory, not what you're gonna eat and what you're gonna drink and what you're gonna wear? Jesus says you have to learn to reorder your loves. Elsewhere in Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is saying what you drive, where you live, where you vacation, those are not the ultimate realities of life. Some of those are not even basic necessities. But they're just the right amenities. So how do you reorder your loves? How do you reorder your loves? One way you begin to reorder your loves is like the prophets of Israel used to speak about the false gods of the other nations. Right? Here's what you need to learn to do. You need to learn to, learn to mock your other masters. <laughs> you need to look at them and you need to mock them. Right? I love the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel whenever they go to have this contest of whose God is more powerful. 
And they set up the altar and they prepare the sacrifice and set it on the altar and then they have a contest and who's God's gonna respond? Who's God's gonna answer? Who's God's gonna show up? And so the prophets of Baal, they dance around the altar, they cut themselves with knives and they, from morning to noon, they continue to pray it around the altar asking, the, asking their gods to show up and consume the offering that they've left on the altar. And finally at noon, Elijah just kind of sits back. He's just been observing all this stuff. He sees, finally he speaks up and he goes, well listen, he, he is a god, isn't he? I mean, I think that he is. That's what you say, you say that he is, but may, maybe he's just off in thought somewhere. Maybe he's got a good book of poetry with his legs crossed on an ottoman there with a fire going, and he's just thinking very deeply. Or maybe he's on vacation, maybe he's traveling, right? Or maybe he's, it's, it is after lunch, and so maybe he had a big lunch and now he's a little bit tired, he's taking a nap. Or maybe, maybe he's in the can relieving himself, right? It, it could be any of these things. Elijah actually says that, maybe he's relieving himself. Right, he's mocking the other gods of the other nations. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 135. Listen to what he says. He says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. In other words, no one's created, they, they, they were not self-existent, somebody had to create them. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who put their trust in them. In other words, you call them gods, but you made them with your own two hands. You call them gods, but they have mouths with no words coming out, right? They have eyes, but don't see, ears, but don't hear. They are not alive, they are dead images. They are dead artifacts that you're putting your trust in. And the psalmist mocks them. Elijah mocks the gods of the other nations. And you and I need to learn to do the same. We need to learn to look at our idols, those things that have risen in our life to a place of godlike status and learn to mock them, right? Some of you need to go home today and you need to look at your bank account and say, you are a useful gift but a useless God. You need to go into your closet and look at all your clothes and shoes and say, you are a useful gift but a useless God. You need to look at all of the food in your pantry that you're gonna consume as you make these great meals and all the restaurants that you go to eat at and say, you are a useful gift but a useless God. All the experiences and vacations, useful gifts, useless God. And some of, you, some of us literally need to say those things to our clothes in our closet, to the food in our, on our plates, to our, our checking account statement, to our savings account statement, to our 401k statement. You are a useful gift, but a useless God. And remind yourself that there is only one who can provide the significant security and satisfaction that your heart is longing for. It can only be found in one place. Jesus says, identify the source, what other master has control, and then learn to reorder your loves so that you would make your great aim, the highest aim of your life, not finding security, in your bank account, but finding your security in seeking after the kingdom of God and his righteousness and knowing that he will provide all the things that you need. You know what he says in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now what he's not saying is this. He's not saying get out your laundry list of everything that you could possibly want, right? And then you want these things, then you seek God and he's gonna deliver those things to you. What he's saying is this, is that if you make the great aspiration and aim of your life to bring every area, aspect, and arena of your being under the righteous and redemptive rule of Jesus so that you bend your knee to him and only to him, you're no longer rule and run your own life, but now he has the ability to call all the shots in your life. He runs and rules your life, not you, that you bend your knee to him and seek first his kingdom, that God will provide everything that you need if you make it your great aim to give yourself to everything that he wants. That if you give yourself to everything that he desires for you, he'll provide everything that you need to accomplish that. Reorder your loves. Second thing is we have to, these, these next two are gonna be shorter and then we're gonna be done and take communion, okay? But second thing, you have to learn to listen to the right voice. If you're gonna put anxiety to death in your life, not only do you have to reorder your loves, but you have to learn to listen to the right voice. See, one of the reasons anxiety courses in our lives is because we're listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. That sounds a li- little bit strange, but let me break it down for you, okay? We, we tend to listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. Listen, in verse 25 to 29, Jesus says on a couple of occasions, he says, I tell you. Here, I, here's what I'm going to, t- here's what you're saying to yourself, but here's what I'm going to tell you. He says, in fact, you drop down further in the text and what you're gonna find is that you get down into Verse 31, and he says, therefore do not be anxious saying, in other words, you're just talking to yourself, right? you're listening to yourself, you're saying to yourself, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And Jesus says, you gotta stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself, start listening to the right voice in your life. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm saying to you. See, listen, if you're gonna put anxiety to death in your life and in the spiritual realm of your life, what you have to learn to do is you have to learn to look at the what ifs of life What if relationally? What if vocationally? What if physically with my body? What if educationally with all my aspirations and agendas? What if, look at all the what ifs of life and learn to respond and replace all the what ifs with if God. With if God. Right? All the uncertainties about the future, replace those with all the certainties that you know about God. All the things that make you a little bit squeamish about what tomorrow holds, replace them with what you know to be rock solid, stable about the character and nature of who God is. And Jesus does that for us in the text. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 26 and 27, and then again in 32, he gives us three big truths about God to replace all the, say, if God, replace all the what ifs with these if God statements. You need to learn how to, 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 to put some therefores in your thinking, okay? And here's the first one. Jesus affirms the providence of God. Now, that's a big theological term, right? And if you don't read 17th century Puritan writing, you're like, I don't even know what that means, right? Here's, here's the, the idea of providence, okay? It's a big theological term, but it means this. It means it's, it's a knot, right? You ever tie a knot? Anybody ever tie a knot? Your shoes every day, unless you slip on loafers, whatever you have. But you tie a knot, right? And the knot 
God's providence is, like, is, is the knot that is formed whenever you take the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and you bring them together and you tie a knot. Right? It's the thread of God's sovereignty and the thread of God's goodness and bring those two things together and you have a knot that's called God's providence. And what it is is this, is that God is sovereignly directing the affairs of human history and your life and my life and he's doing so for our good. That is God's providence, that he's caring for us about the realities of life, the necessities of life, that he's providing for us, providentially caring as a father does for his children. And Jesus says you gotta take the what ifs and replace it with if God is providential, if he's good and sovereign, and he's tenderly caring for me as a good, good father, as Chris Tomlin says. It's who he is. Listen to what he says in verses 26 and 27. He says, consider the birds, right? They don't go out and punch a time clock, right? They don't record hours, but God feeds them. He providentially cares for the birds of the air. He providentially clothes the lilies of the, the grasses of the field to make them beautiful and arrayed in all of their splendor. When you go out today, right? I could, even as I was, I was walking around the building this morning praying and thinking and rehearsing, going over the sermon, um, I could hear the birds chirping outside. And just a reminder, every time you see a bird, every time you hear a bird, right? Martin Luther said the birds are like our schoolmasters. They're our teachers. And they, they teach us that God providentially cares for his creation. And, the, and the, the lilies of the field, he said, they're like our theologians. They teach us truths about who God is and how he arrays them in all their splendor. That God's providentially caring for the grass and the birds because he cares about the realities of life in his creation. Do you believe that? Do you, be, I'm not saying do you, would you, would you go, you know what, yeah, you're probably right. Like intellectually, I'll check that box. But when you wake up in the morning, do you believe that God has ordained this day to care for the birds and clothe the lilies? Do you believe that? That God is not distant and far removed. He didn't spin the earth into existence and say, good luck, fellas. But that he's still actively involved in everything that he has formed by his own hands. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you can replace what if with if God is providential, if he's sovereign and good, directing and controlling the affairs of my life, so that even, Paul says in Romans chapter eight, so that even in hardship and difficulty and turmoil, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means that you're more than, have, you have more than victory over all those things in your life. It means that God's taking those things and he's turning them for your good. He's turning them for your, your glorious conformity, the image of Jesus. He's making you more like him and forming your character and producing perseverance. That God's working in the midst of all that because he's ordaining those things for your good. Do you believe that? Second truth that he gives us is about the love of God. Because he goes on to say, are you not of more value than they? If God providentially cares for the birds and the, and the grass, at the, at the pinnacle of all that he's created, does he not much more so care for you? Is God not a tender father, compassionate and kind? 
that he would, he, would not, he would not withhold his own son from us, but giving up for us freely so that with him he might give us all things. That God has showered us with love, grace, mercy, compassion, and kindness. And then thirdly, he says, you gotta replace the what ifs with the if God is not only providential, not only loving, but he's also omniscient. Because he goes down further in the text to say, you know what, the Gentiles are chasing after all these things, but your heavenly father, what is, what is it, what is it? He knows. He knows that you need them all. So that God, that, that there's not, do, do you realize that nothing ever catches God off guard? <laughs> do you realize that nothing, nothing ever takes God by surprise? There's never a shock to God's system. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Do, do, you, do you realize that the Father and Son and the Spirit, never they, they aren't sitting there in the heavenlies and they look at each other and go, you know what, it, it never occurred to me. It never dawned on me, right? That conversation never happens with God because he knows everything. And because he knows everything and because he, he, he comes to us as a loving Father who's providentially caring for all of his creatures, Jesus says, take, listen to the right voice, Right? Replace all the what ifs with the if God, these truths, these bedrock foundational truths about who God is. And it'll begin to cut off the roots of anxiety in your life. You begin to live free from it. But finally, and this is, and we're, this, this is, this is it, I promise. You, you gotta, we have to learn to live like we know God. You have to learn to live like you know him. And I'm not talking about I went to a Christian school and I went to a Christian camp and I went to a Christian college and I got a degree and I've been in church all my life. I'm not talking about I've heard all the Bible stories and I memorized some scripture. I'm talking about learning to live functionally day after day like you know God, like you're in covenant relationship to him. He has bound and pledged himself to you through his son and his blood and his resurrection and his return. Look at what he says in the text. In verse 32, Jesus says, or in verse 31, he says, don't be anxious about your daily provisions. And in verse 32, he lays down the grounds for this command and he says this, for the Gentiles seek after these things. Now the Gentiles was a catch term. It's like a big term, catch term in Jesus' day for those who were outside of covenant relationship to God. So they weren't a part of the people of God. So they didn't have access to the promises of God and the provision of God. In God's common grace, yes, he had provided for them, but in his special grace of his covenant relationship, they did not, weren't participants in the promises of God. But listen, Jesus says, those who are outside of covenant union with God, they are the ones whose lives are aiming at all of the basic necessities in life. They're the ones who are fretting over all these things, but your heavenly father knows that you need every single one of them, so live like you know him. Order your life in a way, right? Preach to yourself. You ever have to, I have to do that sometimes, stand in front of the mirror and remind myself of the truths about God, his providence, his love, and his omniscience. And that you're in union with this God because he has given his son for you, that he's established a new covenant by the blood of Jesus that we're about to celebrate here together this morning as we come and remember his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. That he's, you're in union with him. His Holy Spirit has come to dwell within you. 
That he's, he's given you access to him through prayer so that through everything, with prayer and petition, you can slay your anxieties as you come to God, delivering those things to him and have the peace of God shower over your heart. Live like you know him, depend on him, rest in him, take refuge in him, flee to him, run to him, find solace in him. Yeah, I learned to live like you know him. And I'm afraid sometimes in my life, I live like I don't. Because anxiety just rises and at times it just begins to eat chunks out of my, what feels like eating chunks out of my very soul. Now, I wanna, as we close and come to receive the elements this morning, I want to tell you something, that if you're here this morning and, and you don't know God, then anxiety is the most rational and logical response for you in the midst of all of your what-ifs. It's the only response you've got. If you've never, if, because if, if you and I are gonna run and rule our own lives, then the outcomes are up to us. And so of course, I'm gonna be incredibly anxious, incredibly worried, and filled with fret. And if you've never taken that step of releasing your life out of your hands, saying I'm not gonna run and rule my own life any longer, but I'm gonna put my life under the rule of Jesus, I'm gonna let him run and call the shots for me, I'm gonna yield to him, I'm gonna place my faith and trust in him, I'm not going to ascend the ladder up to God, but I'm gonna receive the fact that he's come down the ladder to me. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, I want you to know this morning that your anxiety is all you have. But if you would release control, you would stop running and ruling your life for yourself and place your life under his rule and let him define what is right and wrong, let him define what is good and evil, let him define, then he's in control of the outcomes of your life and you can be free from worry as you place your hands in the hand of a providential, loving, and all-knowing God. If you've never done that this morning, I wanna invite you to do that. I'm gonna be in room five as you leave today, and if you wanna come by and stop and visit about what that looks like to place your hand in the hand of Jesus and allow him to save you and give you the kind of security that you've been looking for in all kinds of other masters, I wanna invite you to come visit with me. And if that's you this morning, I wanna invite you to just watch as we take of the bread and the cup together this morning. But if you have taken control of your life and placed it in the hands of Jesus and come under his righteous and redemptive rule, I wanna invite you, whether you're a member of this church or not, if you're a Christian who's trusted Jesus to save you and is trusting Jesus as your security, maybe you would come this morning in repentance, recognizing there's other masters that have been operating in your life. And you would come in repentance and remember that this is the only place you can find satisfaction, security, and significance. I wanna invite you to come to the table this morning. And remember, as Paul says in Romans chapter eight again, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up freely for us all, how will he not give us with him all things? Let's pray together. Father, today, we're so grateful for your grace and mercy. God, that you have lavished upon us. God, that you have not withheld from us, but God, that you have freely given to us. And Father, I pray for those in the room this morning who have never taken the step of taking their life and placing it under your righteous and redemptive rule. God, that you want to save them and release them and free them from their anxiety. 
to make them a kind of countercultural person in this world that is filled with it. God, I pray that they would, you would give them the grace by your Holy Spirit, God, that you would save them, that you would draw them to yourself, God, that they would find your, their heart can rest in you and find a security and set significance and, and satisfaction that they can find nowhere else. I pray that they would see the folly and the f- absolute foolishness of looking to other masters because they can never provide what they promise. But God, this morning as we come to the table, I pray that as we come, that if there's repentance that needs to take place in our hearts, that God, that you would turn us toward yourself and away from all the other masters, that you would entrench these truths about who you are in our hearts and minds, and we would listen to the right voice, we would learn to reorder our loves, and then we would live like we're a child of a great, glorious, grand king who has the heart of a tender, compassionate, and loving dad who will provide. I pray these things in Jesus' name.